You may be seated. So yes, our theme for this morning is grace. And as a reminder, we are in uh, week two of our series in the month of October on the Reformation. As we mentioned uh, last week when we started our series and talked about uh, the idea of sola scriptura, which uh, really just means scripture alone, that we talked about authority and how that really was the, um, the main precipitator of what we call the Protestant Reformation when Martin Luther, the great teacher and theologian and Catholic monk, started to read the scriptures and understand that the authority didn't lie in the church or in the leaders, that, it, that uh, a great authority over the Christian, the uh, infallible Word of God, is the sole authority of the life of the believer. And so we believe that here. And so that really started a firestorm. And we talked a lot about that last week. And so there were what we call five solas or five great precepts that came out of the Reformation back in the year 1517 and then the few years after that. And we're going to look at all five of them this month leading up to the last Sunday in October because the actual anniversary of Martin Luther posting what we call his 95 theses or 95 points of contention um, against the Catholic Church, specifically the selling of indulgences. That happened on October 31st, 1517, 500 years ago. And so we are on week two of our uh, look back at church history and the Reformation, remembering the heritage of our faith. And this morning, we are on number two. So sola scriptura was one, and this one is sola gratia. And uh, most of you can probably figure that out, but that means grace alone. And so sola meaning alone, we have sola scriptura meaning scripture alone as our authority. Today is grace alone. We have sola fide is faith alone. Sola Christos, which is Christ alone. And then sola Deo Gloria, which means for the glory of God alone. And those will be the five. But today our theme is grace. But actually, I think what we should all be reminded of, if nothing else, is that our theme every day and every Sunday should be grace. Amen? And I think that will become clear as we look at that. It is such a big word. It's a word that we use a lot. It's in many of our songs, hymns of the, of the, the faith and our tradition, hymn, um, new songs that are written in contemporary form, all about grace. So we're going to look at basically what it means and what it doesn't mean. And then I want to share three brief stories about grace. And I think as we go through it, you'll be able to think of times in your life when God has shown you in a unique way how gracious he is. We all have perhaps a turning point in our life as a follower of Christ when God really shows us how gracious he is a time that we will never forget and so the first story i want to share is actually a story that i shared here at church maybe last year or so but as i was thinking through 
the, um, the times in, in my life when God was so gracious, I thought back to probably the very first time, which was really a turning point in my life and in marriage with Claudia and our, our young marriage. And I shared uh, the brief idea of this story, but I wanted to give you some elements that perhaps I didn't point out of just a great illustration of what it means when we say God is gracious or the grace of God. So when Claudia and I were first married, we were still at Rutgers University and we were students. And of course, we didn't know any better. And we said, well, we don't have jobs and we're still going to school. So let's get married. And that's what we did. Right. And so all the parents are like, make sure you tell our teenagers that it's not recommended. But that's okay, you know, we, we were, were young believers as well, and we were just excited that God had brought us together and wanted to spend our lives together. And so we got married, and we still, we just lived right off campus. And um, it was just, it was probably the second month that we were on our very first apartment. It was a studio apartment right there in the center of New Brunswick. And um, we didn't have the money for rent. And a lot of you can probably, you know, relate to that. And here we were our second month in, and uh, we had just gotten a job. Claudia had a job and whatever, and just starting out, and we couldn't figure out how to pay the rent. And so the rent was $750. Yes, that was a long time ago. And so we had to come up with $750. We didn't have it. And so what happened was there was one day when um, we got a check in the mail and Claudia was at work and I was home and I opened it. It was from Rutgers. It was from the financial aid department. You always love those letters, right? And it was a check for guess how much? $750 made out to Claudia. And so I called Claudia at work and I said, we have a check from Rutgers for $750. What's going on? I didn't know anything about it. And she said, I don't know. But her estimation was that she was due a refund from a financial aid package she got. But really she understood that it should have been $75. And so, you know, and so what do we do? And so I did, I called the financial aid office. This is at the very beginning of the year. Probably it was in September. We got married in August. It would have been, okay, yeah, be going into October. And so I called the financial aid office. I told them we had this check for $750. And they said, hold on. And they looked. And here's what the lady said. She came back and she said basically this. She said, you know what? We updated our complete, we updated our computers this summer. We have a brand new software program. And she said, there is no way for us to track if this was an error or not. And so therefore, that is your money. So I felt like we did the right thing. I called and she basically said that if there was an error, it has been wiped clean. And so at that moment, I called Claudia and she said, you better get down on your face and thank God. And you know what it taught us early on? That God would always take care of us, right? There have been other struggles in 26 years of marriage, financial struggles. And God doesn't always answer that way. We don't always expect a check in the mail for exactly what we owe. But of course, God answers our prayers in many different ways and he provides. But early on in our marriage, I really look back at that and say, God was showing us I am here for you. I will take care of you if only you will trust in me. Because in his graciousness, what he does is he gives us what we do not deserve. 
Grace is simply God's unmerited favor. So we did not deserve that $750. There was an error. And in fact, they had given us that money. It was actually then at that moment, if you think about it, a debt that we owed because we didn't deserve that money. But you know what? Our debt was wiped clean. There was no record of what we owed. And so God in His graciousness gave us exactly what we needed, but exactly what we didn't deserve. And that really is how we define grace. You see, grace and mercy are words we use a lot, and the simple way to define them both and distinguish is that grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. But mercy is God withholding that punishment that we do deserve. See the difference? But God is both gracious and merciful. We all have a turning point or times in our lives when God teaches us that kind of lesson. And the same thing was true for Martin Luther, the one who really that God used to initiate, again, the Protestant Reformation. Because if you remember when I shared about his story, him being a Catholic monk and teacher and professor, he had struggled for many years Many years with anxiety, with depression, with frustration, he struggled with trying to please God. Martin Luther's struggle is like many of our struggles. He knew God. He committed his life to God. His father wanted him to be a lawyer, but God got a hold of him. You know what? There's a story that he was walking and got caught in a rainstorm. And there was lightning all around him. He almost got struck by lightning, the story goes. And he cried out to God and said, God, if you save me for this, from this, I will commit my life to you. And God saved him. And then shortly after, he joined the monastery. But the idea was that from that point on, Martin Luther, in essence, and he knew it, was trying to earn God's favor. He was trying to study enough and pray enough. He even says that he was the best at what he called monkery, of being a monk, that he was the greatest because he was the one who was working the hardest and praying the hardest and reading the most. You see, he was trying so hard to earn, as he says, the righteousness of God. And this is really key. He was trying to earn God's favor and his righteousness because he knew that God was a righteous God. He saw him as a righteous judge and himself as a wretched sinner, which is true. But he could never quite understand how to bridge that gap, you see, between God's perfect holiness and righteousness and his wretched imperfection as a sinner. And so, for years, he struggled. He cried out to God. He even came to the point where he said he hated God's righteousness because he felt like it alienated him and there was no way 
that could he, he could earn God's favor and attain that righteousness that he read about so much. Now, of course, we know he was right, but he didn't know it yet. The reason that I bring that up is because it is well known that what really started, what really started his journey and then led to what we call the Protestant Reformation and the change of looking at these five solas, this idea of Scripture being our main authority and that what is, how are we saved? He came to two verses in the first chapter of Romans. It was Romans 1, 16 and 17. And it was these two verses, especially verse 17, that he just poured over for years. He actually hated these verses until they became his favorite. Because he kept looking at it, especially in verse 17, where it says the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, and he couldn't understand how do I obtain, he would think, that righteousness of God. God is a righteous judge, and he must always be condemning me. Do you see? What a life of, listen, of slavery in chains not being yet to able to understand God's amazing love and God's amazing grace that we were singing about. He had not yet realized that his chains were gone and he had been set free. But it was one fateful day, probably just a year or two before he nailed that 95 thesis and started the whole thing, that God through his Holy Spirit revealed to Martin Luther this simple but yet most profound um, truth is that there is no way that he could ever earn God's favor. And see, we know that it's a lesson that the people of Israel, God's chosen people, learned over and over. But it was Luther's environment. It was his teaching from the church at the time. It was all these things that were leading to him not understanding the simple but amazing truth of God's grace. That even through that verse, God is saying, it is God's righteousness that we attain through faith. And it is simply when we believe. We'll look at other verses that talk about that. It was at that moment that Martin Luther says he was set free. When he realized that he could not earn God's favor. That he could not work his way to salvation. That God's righteousness was given to him as a free gift. And that truly is the foundation of the gospel, isn't it? It is a gift. It is a gift that is given to us by God our Heavenly Father in one way and one way, one way only, and that is through the sacrifice of His Son Jesus. That was the turning point in Martin Luther's life. That was the turning point when he truly understood he could not earn God's favor, for it was simply to everyone who believes. Because at the end of verse 17 in that Romans chapter 1, it says, the righteous shall live by faith. It is to everyone who believes. See, when we say the word believe, what does that mean? You remember, the, I think it was the Philippian jailer and asked, what, what can I do to be saved? And the response was, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. What does it say in John 3.16? For God so loved the world that whoever would what? 
believe in him. I, I really want to make this point, and I really hope that, um, that you believe this, or at least it makes sense to you now to understand that grace is free. That we can do nothing to earn it. It does not require repentance as we might define it. It does not require doing any sort of work whatsoever. The grace of God is free. It is a gift. And we are but humble beggars reaching out our hands to receive that free gift of God's grace. Him giving us certainly what we do not deserve. And that is forgiveness and life eternal. See, we are the ones that deserve to be on the cross, not Jesus Christ, who was perfect himself. But as last year we went through the book of Ephesians and Galatians and we talked about this idea of justification, a big word that we use, it simply means that we have been set right before our God because of Christ's righteousness, you see. Christ was perfectly righteous because he was perfectly God, right? His righteousness was imputed or put onto us, given to us, and our sinfulness was imputed and given to him. Do you see the great exchange there? We do nothing to earn God's righteousness. In order for us to enter back into a relationship with God that has been separated from the time of the Garden of Eden through sin then how are we going to enter into the presence of a holy God unless we are holy and righteous ourselves? We are only made holy and righteous and perfect in God's eyes through the gift of His Son, Jesus Christ. And that is the gospel. And that is what it means when we say God is gracious or the grace of God. Great grace is God's grace, greater than all of our sins. We just sang that this morning. That was the turning point in Martin Luther's life when he struggled with Romans 1.17 and what does it mean that God is righteous and how do I get that righteousness? Because up to that point, he had been struggling. He had struggled mightily like many of us, like all of us in some way or another, trying at one point in our lives to be good enough for God to forgive us. We know people in our lives and our families our friends at work and our neighbors who, whether they would admit it or not, in some way or another, are going through the same struggle, trying to, <clears throat> trying to find their way to God. Do you know that this idea of grace is truly what separates true Christianity, the true Christian faith, from every other world religion or faith system that ever has been and is now and ever will be? Because in its essence, every other faith system or world religion really has as its basis man trying to get back to God. To please God, to earn God's favor. But Jesus, as he did with everything else, set the world upside down. And he said, no, it is all God pursuing you. We can see it all the way back in the garden. Remember when Adam and Eve sinned and they tried to hide from God? Remember that silliness? And God found, God searched after them in the garden and said, where are you? That was the first indication. God was searching after them, see? And they were trying to hide. You can run and hide. But God in his loving graciousness is searching after you. And that grace is what distinguishes the true faith 
the true faith we find in Scripture alone that separates it from every other world religion and faith system. So there was no more striving or struggling to please God for Martin Luther. You know, also talking about the Garden of Eden before I share the third story, think about it this way. What was truly the first revelation of God's grace? You have to go all the way back to the beginning of Genesis, to the beginning of the story of God and His Word. It goes all the way back to the Garden. Do you remember what happened in that scenario I just gave you when Adam and Eve were tempted by the enemy? And they gave in to that temptation. And they chose, as we said last week, to want to have their own authority over their lives instead of allowing God to be in authority. You remember what happened, right? Their relationship was separated. And that affects us to this day, right? But what did they try to do? They run and they hide. They tried to cover themselves, didn't they? See, it says that they were naked and then they knew it. See, that didn't change. They were naked before they sinned. They were naked after. But now they saw it from a very different perspective, completely different. So they tried, listen, this is really important. They tried on their own to cover their sins. And so they took fig leaves, right? Leaves, and they tried to cover themselves, their nakedness. But what did God do? When he punished them for their sin and he, and, he, and he pronounced judgment and he kicked them out of the garden, right? Changing their whole perspective. The garden was still there. Now they were on the outside looking in because their relationship was severed. But what did God do before he sent them out of the garden? Did he not cover them with the skin of an animal? He replaced the fig leaves. What they were trying to do to cover their sins themselves he replaced of his own accord, God did, with the skin of an animal. That means there must have been a sacrifice on behalf of Adam and Eve. There was blood shed to cover the sin of Adam and Eve. They didn't have to do anything for that to happen. God initiated himself and did it himself. He initiated it. He sacrificed an animal to cover them. He did it all. That was God's graciousness. Is that awesome? Praise God for that. God did that. And so we know we look forward to the Lord Jesus Christ, the last one of God's beautiful, beautiful love. His one and only Son, we say in John 3.16. His one and only Son that we know that God said this would be the final sacrifice. The sacrifice to cover our sins. And that's why we need to look to Him and Him alone. And that's why the good news of the Gospel is His graciousness in giving to us the gift of His Son and His Son's shed blood to do what? Cover our sins, just like He did way back in the Garden of Eden. So God's grace is certainly unmerited favor. Look at this next key verse, and perhaps the one that we really should commit to memory, one that is so key when we talk about 
What does it mean to be saved? How are we to, um, how are we to gain salvation? Here's what it is. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, right? For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God so that it is not the result of works that no one can boast. Maybe perhaps this is a couple of um, verses that you've memorized in the past. It's ones that you know. We're actually going to keep coming back to this because it talks about grace. It talks about faith. But it says it's all from God, isn't it? It is by grace you have been saved through faith. So grace is how we are. Grace, right, is God's provision for salvation. And then faith is how we obtain it. Faith is not a work. Let's be clear about that. Faith is not a work that you do to earn the salvation. It is simply, again, the act of a beggar reaching out his hands to receive that. Does that make sense? And so here it is. It says, this is not your own doing. How much clearer could it be? It is the gift of God. It is not a result of works, of your works or my works, of anybody's works, so that no one can boast. No one can boast. It is initiated by God. It is grace that is free. The third illustration, we'll spend most of the time on this and unpack it a little bit. This is the story of Jacob from the Old Testament. And if you remember, there's a really, really interesting and somewhat bizarre thing that happens to Jacob. He wrestles with an angel. You remember that story? I talk about turning points in our lives when God reveals his grace to us. And like when God did that with the, the check we received from Rutgers Financial Aid. And when, when God really spoke to Martin Luther through his studying of the scriptures, through his Holy Spirit to reveal to him that it was by God's grace alone that he is saved. And that's how he gets God's righteousness. You see, that was a turning point in his life. There was also a turning point in the life of Jacob. There are many things that happened to him. I'm going to give a quick background with the scriptures. I'll read through them quickly. They'll be up on the screen so you can see it. But this is what happens leading up to Jacob wrestling with the angel. Because that was a turning point in the life of Jacob when God revealed his grace to him. So even before Jacob was born... We know that he was someone who was going to struggle with others. From Genesis 25, 21 to 26, we remember this story. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. The Lord granted his prayer. Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said, Two nations are in your womb. Isn't that amazing? And two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. So when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red. All his body was like a hairy cloak. They called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob, which really means struggle or grabber. Isaac was 60 years old when his wife, when she bore them. That's Genesis 25. 
So then, so right from there, you see there was a struggle. Jacob was going to be one who was going to struggle to get ahead. You see that? Even grabbing on to Esau's heel. And then, and then the next verses after that, we see when the boys were grown, Jacob continued to strive to get ahead. Verse 27, when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in the tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. See, there was favorites going on there. Not that we do that with our kids, right? But that was there. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field. He was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew. I'm exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. What use is his birthright to me? Okay. Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore, meaning Esau swore to him, and he sold his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of stew. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. Esau ate it, and he drank, and he rose, and he went his way. So Esau despised his birthright. Again, there was Jacob striving, struggling to find his way, to earn his place in the world and before God. You see a trend happening here? The final blow, the final really part of that between the relationship of Jacob and Esau occurred when, do you remember this story, when Jacob deceived his father into thinking that he himself was Esau to obtain his father's blessings. That was in Genesis 27. Remember that? Jacob was wrong in the way that he obtained Isaac's blessing, of course, And that shows, once again, Jacob was striving with men and with God. And as a result of his deception, Esau, of course, was furious with Jacob. So their parents sent Jacob away. You need some, you need a timeout. So he sent him away to a place called Padan Aram. He obtained a wife. They were like, go find a wife and settle down. And, you know, they had to separate him. We've had to do that with our kids, right? Separate them. He did that. But on his way to this new land to obtain a wife, Jacob had a vision which indicated that the land he was leaving, the promised land, it was what was called the gate of heaven. That's what he saw it as in his vision in verse 28, uh, in chapter 28 of Genesis. What that really means is simply this. Jacob knew he had to go back there someday. That's where the blessings were. See, he had to get back there. He couldn't permanently stay where he was going. But after he had this vision, here's what he did. Jacob made a covenant with God. Okay? Let's make sure we understand how that works here. Jacob goes before God and says, God, if you do this, I'll do this. I'm going to read it in a second. Does that kind of sound like the struggle that Martin Luther went through? God, if you save me from the storm, I'll do this. God, I'm going to be the best monk there is, and then you can bless me with your righteousness. See that struggle, that striving. It says in Genesis 28, Then Jacob made a vow, and he said, If God will be with me, and if he will keep me in this way that I go, I will give, uh, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace. Remember, he's like, he wanted to get back there someday. Then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up as a pillar, shall be God's house. 
and of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. See what he did? Now I know, we, we all do this too sometimes. He's making a pact with God. God, if you let me get back to my father's land in good graces with him, if you give me the food I need and the, the clothes that I need, then I'll give you an offering. So God, if you do this for me, then I'll do this for you. That was the deal that he was making with God. A lot of ifs in there. Jacob was making a commitment to God, but it was all based on his performance, wasn't it? Again, he was striving and struggling to find favor with God. But what do we know that Jesus says to us in Matthew 6? That we are to first seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness And then all of those things, the things that even Jacob said, the food and clothing, then God will provide all those things. See, he had it all backwards. We get it backwards all the time. That's why it's so important that we understand God's grace. Because once again, he was striving and struggling, right, to please God. So then there was finally a time When on his way back, here's the turning point. A wrestling match between Jacob and an angel. Genesis 32. That same night he arose, he took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, he had been busy, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. Okay, He took them, he sent them across the stream and everything he had. Okay, So he got to this place, he sent them over. He sent us all his possessions, all of his family. It says, Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I won't let you go unless you bless me. He's doing it again, isn't he? <laughs> and he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. That's when he changes it. For you have striven with God and with men, and you have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, tell me your name. He said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of that place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket, God did, of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh, Genesis 32. See, so it almost seems like what this is teaching us is that Jacob prevailed against the angel. He prevailed against God. He worked hard enough where God said, okay, I give in. He lost the wrestling match. But is that truly what happened? No, see, I think this is really God showing his graciousness to Jacob. Why? Because in all of his struggling, finally, what did the angel do? The angel being God, we know. He pressed on his hip. He threw his hip out of joint. Some of us are like, man, I know what that feels like. So that, right, so that he would be what? Humbled. See, from that point on, From that point on, Jacob is really in no position to bargain with God at all. He really isn't, because God humbled him. But it said that God still blessed him. 
changed his name to Israel. We know how God blessed him. God was gracious to Jacob in all of his striving and all of his struggles. God humbled him. That's really what grace should do for us is humble us, recognize that we cannot wrestle with God and win. We cannot strive hard enough against our brother and sister. We cannot work our way into God's favor. See, all of his life he had been striving with God and men. He'd been trying to get ahead of his own cheating and cunning, his own effort. But when the angel struck that crippling blow to Jacob, he had no way to force the angel to bless him. But the angel being God did bless him. All he could do was beg for God's favor and mercy. Jacob finally learned at that turning point in his life how God's blessings are granted, not by striving, but by grace. And I end with this. We're going to look at Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 again. This simply is the gospel. Grace is the key. It is not from us, but it is from God. The saying goes that we believe and we receive. When we believe, when it says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, here's the two things that happen when we believe. And I end with this. We believe. We accept the truth of who Christ is and what He did for us. But it's not enough to just simply accept it as fact. A lot of people do that. But we then put our faith and trust in Him and that that is true for our eternal salvation. Do you see the two have to go together? When we say we believe, all that is caught up in the true meaning of that word believe, it's not just mentally accepting it as fact, but it's accepting it as truth and then putting our faith and trust in it for eternal salvation. That's not easy. It's not easy to believe. Is it easy to trust your eternal security, to give up all authority and control, it goes completely against our sinful nature. So that's why it's important to know that it is by grace that we have been saved, through faith. It is God's grace, and we simply accept it by faith. It's not of our own doing. It's the gift of God. It's a lesson that God taught us early on that we still have to be reminded of. It's a lesson that God taught Martin Luther It's a lesson that God taught Jacob in all of his striving and his struggles. You might feel like you're Jacob or you're Martin Luther, struggling to please God, trying harder and harder, trying even as a believer, trying to just, you know, please God and do the right thing, and then maybe he'll bless you. But let me point it out this way. I suggest that you try less and surrender more. Give yourself to God. Be humble. Surrender your heart. Yield your will to His. In that, He will lift you up and show you the riches of His love and the riches of His grace. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the powerful Word that You give us each and every time we get together. We thank You, Father God, for Your awesome love for your awesome grace we've been singing about it this morning we've been looking at how you changed the life of a man who sought after you that you used to change the course of history to reveal the truth of the gospel that it is by grace alone that we have been saved simply through our faith in you 
that it is not of our own works, but it is truly a gift from you. We thank you, Lord, the way that you showed Jacob, the way that you showed us this morning. God, would you continue to work in our lives, that we would rely on ourselves and our own strength less and less every day and rely on your strength more and more every day. God, would you bless us? Would you use your Holy Spirit within us to guide us, to convict us when we are led astray and we give in? Father, we thank you for giving us what we do not deserve and being so very gracious. Now, Father, would you help us to return that, to pay it forward, as it were, and to show others the grace that you have shown us? We pray. Jesus' precious name. Amen. Why don't you all stand and and join us one last time in singing the last two verses of Amazing Grace. But keep in mind what Pastor Keith just ended with in saying we should just try less and give it to God more. The Lord has promised good to me his word my hope secures he will my shield and portion be as long as life sing my chains are gone my chains are gone i've been set free My God, my Savior, has ransomed me, and like a flood, His mercy reigns, unending love, amazing grace. are gone my chains are gone I've been set free my God my Savior has ransomed me and like a flood his mercy reigns unending love 
my chains are gone. My chains are gone. I've been set free. My God, my Savior has ransomed me. And like a flood, His mercy reigns, unending love, amazing grace, unending love, amazing grace. One more time, unending love. Unending love, amazing grace. Father, we thank you for your...